Well, thank you very much um, for the invitation to contribute um, to this important debate. And um, it's been a great honor to be um, on the panel with Professor Wallenstein and, uh, and Richard Kaplan, especially as you will see uh, how uh, um, uh, important uh, their scholarship in general has been for the work that I have developed and to which I will refer in my talk. So I will address that particular angle on reconciliation. So reconciliation between the warring sides in the aftermath of mass atrocity should help us conceptualize peace and possibly help us measure it as well. But I think as things stand at the moment, even though on the face of it, peace and reconciliation are not just compatible, but almost synonymous conditions, con reconciliation as a concept doesn't help us at all. As a matter of fact, it just muddies the conceptual waters even more. And yet, it is, we think it is important because peace without reconciliation is nothing else but just the cessation of violence. So the reason why reconciliation doesn't help us is, become, is because it's become a very problematic concept. And it is so problematic that scholars have now seriously begun to question its analytic utility. I've just come from a workshop that we organized at the LSE when one scholar emphatically said we should get rid of it at all. If you look at, talk to affected communities on the ground, for them it has almost become a dirty word. And yet international funders are pouring millions of dollars into reconciliation activities, working on the assumption that reconciliation also means peace. So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to just briefly review the reasons behind this paradox. How come that a concept such as reconciliation has a bad name? And then I would like to focus a little bit on the question of reconciliation and scale, and that's something that I've been working on uh, for the past year. Rather working on intensively, I've been working on it for years, but uh, thanks to the, the, the grant that I have, I've been able to work on it intensely for the last year. So I will start with the, with the definition, but I won't give you a, uh, one definition of reconciliation, because there is none, but I will just pose a series of questions, and each of these questions sort of triggers a very heated debate. So what is reconciliation? Is it about forgiveness and apology, or is it about truth? Is it about the acceptance of the other, a sort of a peaceful coexistence or civility that Roger mentioned this morning, or does it require active interaction? Is it a process or is it an end state? If reconciliation is about transformation of relations, whose relations should be transformed? Who should be involved and at what level? At the level of the state or the level of communities? Or would involving victims and perpetrators suffice? Is reconciliation a religious or is it a secular concept? Can it be conceptualized in, in universal terms at all, or is it necessarily context-specific? And what is good enough reconciliation after all? 
if we accept that reconciliation is always bound to fall short of an ideal, and as Chrisberg notes, that reconciliation is never total, never including all members of antagonistic parties, never includes every dimension of reconciliation completely, not, nor is it ever fully reciprocal between parties. So how can it be useful? So that's a kind of a whole uh, bunch of questions about uh, definition. But from the problem of definition, then we encounter the second challenge, and that is the pathway to reconciliation. How can we track, how does reconciliation come about in the first place? So I would say that 20 years ago or so, at the time when the field of transitional uh, justice sort of emerged, uh, just uh, sort of to define it, that, that this is the field that investigates how states and societies address past human rights violations, the answer was very simple 20 years ago. But now we know that the answer was wrong. At the time, there was a normative enthusiasm around this field, and it rested on the assumption that if you tackle the legacy of mass atrocity, either through criminal trials or through truth commissions, you will actually, uh, this will lead to peace-promoting outcomes, and above all, to reconciliation. And of course, uh, this normative idealism has now been replaced by outright cynicism. And the entire, I would say, research agenda in the field is about unintended effects of transitional justice. So what happens that uh, instead of bringing the opposite sides together, instead of repairing relations, transitional justice intervention have actually had very often a further polarizing effect on the communities that were in the conflict. And just a few weeks ago, for example, as the world awaited the, the, the verdict in the uh, Radovan Karadzic uh, trial, Karadzic was the leader of Bosnian Serbs uh, uh, during the, the war in the 1990s, just basically on the eve of this event, one of the student dormitories in Republika Srpska was named in his honor, basically celebrate him, him as a national hero. And of course, when the genocide verdict was handed down, it was disputed by a wide sections of the population on the Serb, Serb side. So here we have an example of a justice intervention that was supposed to sort of help overcome the past sort of further divide the communities in um, Bosnia. So, of course, there are other more astute ways in which political elites in post-conflict states use and manipulate uh, transitional justice measures to their political ends, for example, using vetting processes to mar marginalize opponents, etc. So if we look at the field of transitional justice, which is really, if you like, aimed at trying to figure out how do we bring out reconciliation, the entire agenda has been skewed towards trying to figure out um, how uh, are these ambiguous effects uh, of transitional justice uh, uh, being produced. And therefore, we have a focus on uh, 
the difficulties of transposing transitional justice norms. We are looking at domestic scope conditions uh, such as elites, even civil society networks. We are looking at exclusive structures, uh, consociationalism, ethnic segregation, etc., etc. So it seems to me that this. I mean, this is an important agenda, but it leaves us with limited understanding of the dynamics of inter-ethnic accommodation and basically um, with little understanding of the possibilities for reconciliation. And the third challenge in the scholarship is something that speaks directly to the theme of this uh, conference, and that is the disconnect between uh, in the scholarship of transitional justice with the scholarship on uh, conflict. And of course, it may be surprising because the entire field of transitional justice is basically premised, built on the consequences of the harm during the violent conflict. But also the field is future-oriented. It looks at towards, uh, 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 towards reconciliation, at least normatively. And therefore, Paradoxically, conflict hasn't, as such, hasn't been much of an interest to scholars who study transitional uh, justice. I think this may soon change because very recently, when looking at unintended effects of transitional, transitional justice mechanisms, scholars have begun to argue that the problem is that these mechanisms do not really address the causes of conflict but this is where this debate stops. They don't really dig into the literature and, and look I mean, at, at debates that have been raging in the conflict studies about the nature of war and the causes uh, of war. So basically, conflict is just brought in as a background uh, information. And I would argue that it has thus closed off um, possibilities to even understand the obstacles uh, to transitional justice. And I'll just have to mention uh, uh, one example, that if you look uh, at the political economy perspective, and an argument that uh, David Keane has outlined this morning, um, uh, understanding conflict as uh, profit-making has been one of the most important explanations uh, that, uh, you know, of, the, of, of the conflict, of the nature of conflict after the uh, Cold War. But for example, this perspective has never been brought into transitional justice scholarship. And conflict actors who profiteered from conflict continue to profiteer from post-conflict by applying the same logic. So for example, in the Balkans, there is a macabre trade in the sale of information of location of mass graves that goes on today. We're talking about 20 years after the conflict. So very actors who were involved in uh, uh, atrocities uh, continue the logic of, of, uh, of profit-making now through the consequences of violence by withholding and selling information um, about the location of mass graves, and I must tell you, there are many of them because one of the characteristics of the wars, um, especially uh, in, in Bosnia, but not just in Bosnia, in Kosovo as well, was that the remains of the people were 
removed, uh, so move, removed around through multiple graves, mass graves. So this creates a lot of opportunity for making money 20 years on. And of course, not understanding this dynamics, even if the transitional justice agenda is focused on the obstacles, again, closes off understanding why there is, uh, isn't there a better quality of peace. So basically, with the cacophony in a definition of uh, reconciliation, and when concept of reconciliation travels to those affected communities, uh, it lends itself as misinterpretation, and it is often treated as relativization or equalization of uh, culpability. And this is why even those, let's say, civil society groups that work on restoring relations that were broken by conflict say that they find the concept of reconciliation, and I hear a quote, extremely irritating and better not be mentioned um, at all. So what I would like to do now is come back to this problem of the disconnect between the conflict studies and um, transitional justice studies and uh, reflect on my research very briefly um, and address the question of reconciliation and scale and use that to come back to the problematic question of definition and the pathway to reconciliation and may make a short remark about conceptualization of peace. In conflict and peace studies, the concept of a regional conflict is uh, nothing new. And this has been uh, a vibrant agenda uh, including the study of regional uh, conflict systems to which uh, Professor Wallenstein has uh, uh, contributed. But until very recently, uh, these regional dimensions have not been addressed by transitional justice scholarship at all. A few years back, uh, two scholars, Amy Ross and Chandra Lake Asriram, have identified uh, what they called an impunity gap. And they said, you know, something seriously doesn't make sense because the conflicts are, uh, they have this cross-border feature. They didn't necessarily use the, 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 the term uh, regional. And yet all transitional justice mechanisms that we are using to deal with contemporary conflicts are national, whether they're uh, truth commissions or trials. So basically, the borders still act as barriers to justice, leaving perpetrators and victims on the opposite side. And no surprise then that then these transitional justice initiatives are not effective, effective at all. And as a matter of fact, the International Journal of, uh, of Transitional Justice, which is one of the key journals in, in, in this field, uh, has uh, uh, currently uh, a call for contributions on regional dimensions of war. We are talking 2016, after this agenda has been really studied for about 20 years in conflict uh, uh, studies literature. So aware of this gap in the transitional justice scholarship, my research has been motivated by my understanding, and maybe I should also add uh, experience, because I worked as a journalist during the Balkan Wars, of the regional nature of contemporary conflicts. And my curiosity, 
curiosity whether there are any merits in pursuing a regional approach to justice and reconciliation. And this is not something that one should assume should be automatically good, because some scholars have argued that the regional um, approaches would only import the tensions that you have at a national uh, level. And I've been looking uh, at um, uh, the conflicts in the Balkans that were a textbook example of a regional uh, conflict system. And of course, again, a textbook example of this mismatch because all transitional justice mechanisms have been uh, national. So I noted this theoretical lesson from the conflict uh, literatures uh, uh, by looking at the regional dimensions of conflict. But I also noted another lesson from the conflict studies, and that is a methodological lesson. Basically, to grab, grasp the regional dynamics and effects, we need met methods and data that overcome methodological nationalism. For example, event-level data helps uh, to this effort in conflict studies. And very briefly, I have been looking at a very unique civil society initiative in the Balkans, which is called RECOM. It is a unique initiative because it gathers uh, and it has gathered representatives of all ethnic groups in the Balkans, so Serbs, Albanians, uh, Muslims, Croats, Macedonians, Slovenians, even the small minorities. And what they're doing, they're advocating for the establishment of a regional fact-finding commission precisely because they feel that you cannot address a regional conflict with a sort of a national uh, response. And what I've done, they've held, uh, and this is, I think, also quite unique about uh, this uh, initiative, they've held uh, about 135 what they called consultations with um, people uh, civil society activists, teachers, journalists, uh, um, involving about 6,000 people in the region of all groups. And this initiative has produced the transcripts of all these meetings. Some have lasted one day, some two days. So, so they produced about four million words of data. I mean, for me, that is a sort of a treasure of information for, for, for a scholar. So what I've done, I've analyzed this data by applying computer-assisted quantitative text analytic techniques, because in this case, um, data and the volume of data itself presents a problem. So the methods that are applied actually need to be able to deal with this, as political scientists have done in the studies of, for example, uh, party manifestos or uh, parliamentary debates that we haven't applied these methods to the field of transi transitional justice uh, before. But uh, not only do these methods allow have allowed me to look at the volume of data, but they've also allowed me to overcome methodological uh, nationalism, uh, which would be a constraint in capturing the effects of a regional approach to justice and reconciliation. I'm currently still uh, doing the analysis, but my preliminary findings point to a moderating effect of a regional level uh, consultations. So what seems to happen is when people level meet at a regional level as opposed at the national, 
or a local level, they uh, talk more about peace, about sort of restorative dimensions of justice. They talk less about nationalism. And um, what is also striking is that they, uh, when they talk about victims, they humanize them. So they don't talk about victims with sort of an ethnic designations. Whereas when they meet at the national or uh, local levels, uh, this ethnic dimension becomes prominent and the victims are uh, uh, mentioned, they're usually designated as ethnic, which is usually of our group, we usually prevents um, sort of a move towards reconciliations. So to conclude, um, just to come back now, having started with a disconnect, to come back to the issue of definition and pathways to reconciliation and just very briefly reflect uh, on what this means for conceptualizing peace. So for my research, reconciliation is, is, a, is a process. And in particular, communication provides a particular pathway that then re results in the recognition of victims and harms done. The broader implication of this finding is that the link between reconciliation and peace, or if you like, a good quality peace, should not be dismissed so easily. Although we now, we do need to be astute about the ways that post-conflict actors subvert and instrumentalize post-conflict justice to create bad peace. We do need to more, know more about how justice intervention produce positive outcomes and the conditions um, un under which they do so. And that means that we need to learn more about the spaces of reconciliation that buck more general societal trends of dominant narratives uh, of elusive reconciliation and really coexist with them. And this actually leads me to sort of my final comments about uh, conceptualizing peace. If we think about these sort of spaces that exist, this sort of, if you like, you can even call them pockets of reconciliation, what this it does, it introduces complexity in, into conceptualizations of peace. Um, it debunks the idea, I don't want to say of a linear progress of peace, but sort of thinking of peace as being something homogenous, because obviously in different areas we will have different quality uh, of peace. And if I just make sort of make a last uh, remark about research in general, it strikes me that we, when we think about work we do, um, and we talk about originality and, and innovation, if you like, we sort of think of pushing our imagination even harder to think of something super smart. But sometimes it just seems to me that it is useful to use the already existing knowledge uh, to tap into the knowledge and uh, to recognize evident connections that need to be made and uh, haven't been made. And in uh, a case of my research, uh, what I've just done was to apply a regional perspective to post-conflict reconciliation and identify one space that some sort of reconciliation and promise for peace can be identified. <laughs>